Hi, and welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Democracy will and must prevail. This podcast is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, direct from Washington, D.C., with support from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. The first woman to serve as the United States Secretary of State and founder of the influential Albright Stonebridge Group, Dr. Madeline Albright, joins us today to talk about why it matters when women win, what it's been like for her to have a seat at the table. We'll also talk with her about a dire threat facing women in public life, targeted violence, and we'll get an update on it from Peru. But first, before we sit down with the secretary, we've got an in-depth look at Tunisia's long tradition of being a leader in women's participation and representation. Communications Officer Amy Redlinski gets us started. The Republic of Tunisia has long been one of the world's more promising spots for democracy. The northernmost country in Africa is home to the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet, the 2015 Nobel Peace Prize winner that created a constitutional system when the country was on the brink of a civil war. And women first earned the right to vote here in 1957. But some parts of the democracy have been slower to deliver, and many Tunisians today say they are frustrated by corruption, mismanagement of the COVID-19 response, and a weak economy. Recently, anger boiled over into violent street protests. President Saeed dismissed the parliament and the nation's prime minister and turned the COVID response over to the military. But as Tunisia struggles to find its democratic footing today, we applaud the Republic for its long history of success pursuing equal representation. In fact, Tunisian women led the way in 2018 by winning 47% of representation in municipal assembly seats. Nikolai Kazorowski and Rabab Zator Join us now to talk more about the role women play in Tunisia's politics. As the International Foundation for Electoral Systems Country Director for Tunisia, Nikolai has supported a lot of elections, including the 2018 municipal election, the first since the Arab Spring in 2011. Nikolai, who calls Lyon home, has also worked on democracy issues for the UN in East Timor and led the election department in Europe's Office of Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. His colleague, Rabab Zator, is the project officer for IFAS. She has grown up in Tunisia and today works with women who live in rural areas to help them understand their rights and responsibilities towards elections. They join us from Tunis. Nikolai, we would be remiss to talk about women's roles and rights in Tunisia without first talking about the current political turmoil. What have you witnessed on the ground? Thanks, Adrienne. Um, what I would say is that uh, I've witnessed mixed feelings you know, about what happened on 25th of July. On the one hand, a sense of happiness, relief, but also a sense of liberation. You know, you've seen celebrations on the streets on 25th of July that clearly shows uh, a popular support uh, to the president's move. Tunisia has felt that democracy has not delivered you know, on its promises to all citizens, the promises that uh, the 2011 revolution have not been fulfilled. So parliament suffers also from a, a great distrust uh, from the people and politicians seem to care, at least that's the perception, that they care more about their own interest and power than about citizens' need. 
Finally, I think that uh, citizens felt that someone hurt them, hurt their suffering, and that was the president by taking the actions he took on the 25th of uh, July. On the other hand, there's a sense of concern, I think, and wariness among you know some part of the population. So civil society has called for vigilance about what happened. And in a way, these events are thrown a certain level of constitutional, legal, and political uncertainty. So currently, Parliament is suspended. Uh, there's no prime minister. There is no clear plan being announced on how to address the top concerns of the population, one being on top of it, uh, COVID, but also unemployment, youth opportunities, uh, but also economic reform. The election of women to office has really been impressive to watch in Tunisia over the last couple of years in particular. What do you attribute their success to? I would say in the Arab world, but also far beyond, uh, Tunisia, Tunisia has, has been seen as a leading country you know, when it comes to uh, women's participation and representation. Uh, I see several converging factors that could explain uh, Tunisia's impressive record. I don't mean exhaustive, but I'll uh, give you three. First, there is a tradition of women activism, you know, since the 19th, 20th century in Tunisia that was coronated with the adoption uh, of the Code of Personal Status in uh, 1956, right at the independence of the country. Uh, this code is a landmark in gender equality. You know, it provides a set of progressive laws that protects women's rights, certainly a first and only in the Arab world. The second is that Tunisia has bred well-known and uh, influential women's organizations. They know they've been fighting for decades for women's rights and greater gender parity. And finally, I would say that there is a conducive constitutional and legal architecture, you know, that has created the foundation, the legal foundation for supporting women's rights. Uh, I recall that the constitution posits the equality between uh, women and men. And I'd like to quote Article 46 uh, of the constitution that mandates equal representation of women in elected assemblies. You know, while this is aspirational and, you know, we haven't reached that goal yet, it's a bold and ambitious objective that I think should be should be commended. It is very impressive. Uh, but I have to ask, for all of the turnout that you've seen women running for office, there still is quite a disparity in voter turnout of women versus men at the ballot box. Is that right, Ravab? Yes. That's absolutely correct. So the turnout of rural women in elections is low as compares it to men. And actually, this is due to many factors. I remember that in 2015, and based on the results of the 2014 national elections in Tunisia, a Tunisian uh, CSO conducted a survey with uh, for 5,200 rural women from five different governorates. The survey aimed to understand the causes of this low turnout and as well to know what are the obstacles that prevent rural women from voting and from registering. So most of the responses were because of the high literacy rate in the remote and rural areas. We noticed that many rural women explained that they cannot exercise their rights as voters because they face challenges when they read the candidates' electoral programs. Also, they have a lack of knowledge about elections. In addition, rural women in general have a lack of financial means to go to register uh, or to vote. In some rural areas, men represent a hurdle for women to go and vote. They did not allow their wives, their mothers, or any female relatives to cast their ballots in elections, since from their perspective, elections is only for men.
Well, and that, as you know, is not something that's unique to Tunisia. We've, we've seen similar trends in, in other countries. And, um, but your team recognized that something really needed to be done to help get these women to the polls. What, what did your team do? So we started by recruiting 300 women ambassadors. We called them women ambassadors on elections and we trained them on elections, on decentralization, local governance and communication techniques. Their role was to go to the field and convince rural women uh, who are living in remote areas to go and register and to vote in both elections, the 2018 municipal elections and the 2019 municipal elections. The objective was to make the voice of women heard by the local authorities and give them the floor to discuss the main challenges faced by the rural women towards their municipality, such as the infrastructure, the electricity, the water, the pollution, etc. So IFES, during this campaign, selected 12 governorates, which has the highest percentage of illiteracy, according to the Tunisian Institute of Statistics. The illiteracy rate is currently standing at 19.1% uh, of the overall population. I understand you had quite a bit of, of work cut out for you in asking these women to come to the ballot and, and actually vote, come out to vote. Can you tell us some of the stories and, and what you had to do to, to convince these ladies that their vote counted and, and it mattered? Yeah, of course. I remember one rural woman from Beja, a governorate in Tunisia, uh, she called Nesia, Nesia said that we had a wrong idea about elections because of the political parties who were using our lack of knowledge for their interest. But thanks to the efforts made by the women ambassadors, we increased our knowledge about electoral concepts and we are convinced about the importance of our participation and we will not let anyone to manipulate us. There is also another woman from Tatawin, she called Salma. She said that before the ambassadors showed at my door, I decided not to vote anymore because we have no jobs, no water. And I thought that every time we vote, there weren't any tangible results. It's only after ambassador's visit that I started to reconsider voting. She convinced me that I should make my voice heard, and now I will teach my children how to vote so that they have a better future. It's really transformative, isn't it? It's quite a cultural shift. Yeah, I found it very important that during our campaigns, uh, many women ambassadors faced multiple challenges in getting men's permission to talk to their female siblings. In fact, rural women in general need to take the permission from their husbands to go and vote. And this made the conversation between the ambassadors and the rural women very difficult. Some men in some rural areas refused to allow their wives to participate in elections. Um, we've seen many, many women run for office, and now we've hear, heard Rabab's story about trying to be more inclusive in society. What do you think the future holds? 
Yeah, I think that the main challenge to address now uh, for Tunisia is not so much on participation, although there are progress to be made, but it's more on women's representation. Uh, overall, Tunisia fares relatively well. When you look at the world, you know, Tunisia ranked about uh, 73rd, uh, US uh, 67. So, you know, in terms of the number of women in parliament, so they're not quite, uh, I mean, they're, they're doing quite well. However, the share of women in parliament, you know, has decreased uh, from 2014, 2019. So in 2014, there was about 31% uh, of women representing parliament, uh, it went down to a quarter uh, with only 54 women uh, MPs elected in 2019. So the trend is not uh, so positive there. But currently, there are some rumors going around the country that the president may actually appoint the first women prime minister in the history of Tunisia. And I even heard, I mean, those are still rumors we'll see uh, when the announcement is made, that uh, there could be a, a government made of only women. I mean, that would be uh, certainly a first. That would be an extraordinary announcement to hear. <laughs> Do you think we'll ever see a woman elected president in Tunisia? You know, th- this is a this is a really tough question, and of course, it's up to uh, to the Tunisian voters to to decide. You know, we we ran a poll not so long ago, and uh, and Tunisians when they ask. The voters express their readiness to vote for women, you know, if she's considered equally qualified as a main candidate. So it shows some openness uh, to vote for, for uh, a woman. During the last presidential election, so back in 2019, only two candidates were actually women out of 26 presidential candidates. So it shows that political arena remains a man's affair in a way. Yes, of course. We are waiting yeah, for a Tunisian president, <laughs> Tunisian woman president, actually. We'll keep our fingers crossed and we'll certainly keep watching. Tunisia is, is leading and has a leading role uh, in women's rights and I hope that we'll continue to uh, carry this weight and carry this leadership forward. Switching gears now, we're going to talk about a very grave concern facing women in public life. It's often hidden and difficult to prosecute, but make no mistake, violence is happening to women in politics all over the globe. We're joined by Missy Reif from the Latin America team to better describe the problem. Missy, political violence can be experienced by anyone. Yes, from first-time voters to seasoned head of state. Do we have any idea how many women a year this kind of violence affects? Honestly, that's a tough question because political violence can take many shapes and forms. Violence around the world, not just in Latin America, can be directed at people of all genders. However, the specific issue of violence against women in politics has three distinct characteristics. First, it targets women because of their gender. Second, the form of violence itself can be gendered as exemplified by sexist threats or sexual violence. And third, its impact is specifically to discourage women from being or becoming politically active. It encompasses all different forms like aggression, harassment, coercion, and intimidation against women as political actors simply because they are women. It's really frightening, and we also know it's really effective in in some countries. Can you share some examples of attacks you've witnessed in Peru? Yes. So with USAID funding, SEP's partners supported the Jurado Nacional de Elecciones, or the National Elections Jury, to develop some tools to track instances of violence against women in politics, and again, analyze this information to see what can be improved in future electoral processes. In Peru, the Equality Office of the Jurado noted that 52% of women candidates in the most recent congressional election reported experiencing some type of violence. 
Specifically, one report included someone sharing a candidate's phone number and address in order to threaten her and encouraging others to dox her. Other examples included sexist comments, defamation of character. So again, I think it's important to remember that while bodily harm or sexual violence may be the most obvious instances of violence against women in politics, it can really take any form beyond just physical harm. Well, Missy, thank you so much for all your work on this. We'll continue to, to keep track of your, your findings and, and keep an eye on the region. Thank you. For a close-up look at this global issue, we are joined now by a woman who has not only cracked the glass ceiling, but skyrocketed well into our stratosphere. A professor, author, diplomat, and businesswoman, Madeleine Albright became the first woman to serve as the 64th Secretary of State under President Bill Clinton in 1997. That appointment made her the highest-ranking woman in the history of the U.S. government at that time. Today, she is founder of the influential Albright-Stonebridge Group, a distinguished professor at Georgetown University, a seven-time New York Times best-selling author, and she chairs the board of the National Democratic Institute, one of the consortium's three principal partners. Among her extraordinary accomplishments, Secretary Albright has never stopped championing the endless challenges women face. She is here now to tell us why and why it matters when women win. Madam Secretary, Dr. Albright, thank you so much for making time for us today. I'd like to start today by talking about a, a terrible subject, but we see truly horrifying stories of women suffering violent retaliation for participating in public life. For the past several years now, you've been deeply committed in, in calling attention to this issue. Why is this focus so important for you? Well, this is a focus that I've had for quite a long time. I, uh, when I was in office, I was concerned about trafficking in women and various issues that were coming up. Uh, and then when I was also in office, I went to a refugee camp uh, near the Khyber Pass, and it was filled with women who had escaped Afghanistan, and they were telling stories about what had happened to their families, the violence against the families, and uh, they, would, they were telling stories about how their sisters or mothers had been beaten up or stories about how one of their relatives jumped out a window in order to avoid being raped. And so I was with them and they were very much on my mind throughout the time that I was in office and certainly since. And I knelt down to be very close to, to them and I uh, reached out to shake hands and, uh, and then I said, I will never let you down. So it has really been on my mind constantly and especially given the kinds of things that we have seen uh, recently going on I do think that women have suffered a great deal. They suffered various times that the Taliban were in office, um, and they are now, again, potentially the victims of major violence, which is why I think it's very important for those of us that have a voice to speak out against what's going on and making sure uh, that this is not what happens, and then trying to help those women that had pasts where they have really been very vocal and are probably now under greater threat to make sure that we can help get them out. And I am really very encouraged by the fact that the women members of Congress are very dedicated to having this be a key issue for things that they talk about. 
Absolutely. And that leads us to our next our next question that I wanted to ask you about the importance of women in democracy. And, and you have often been quoted as saying success without democracy is improbable. Democracy without women is impossible. How does that quote apply to Afghanistan and the United States and, and everywhere abroad? I think that the thing that is important first, even if I weren't a feminist, uh, more than half the population of practically every country is female. And therefore, it is a waste of a resource not to have women involved in active ways to make life better in their own countries. Uh, and I do think that what we are seeing in across the world, that women really do and can and must play a very important role. Democracy is for all the people. Uh, and I do think that uh, it is essential to have women run for office. Violence against women should not be the cost of that because a lot of women then that do have positions in government are then in fact picked out by uh, people who oppose it and they are threatened. They the personally are threatened and their families are threatened. So it is a matter of not only making sure that they run for office, but that they also are respected and don't have to worry about what happens to their families if they speak out. Right. And we've seen that as a great deterrent, unfortunately, in, in many locations. Sometimes women's roles are, are trivialized, though. For instance, I'm, I'm rereading your Madam Secretary book, and you know you talk about your early volunteer work. But, but sometimes don't we find that men in particular will say, oh, that's, that's so nice, a woman's in charge. Why, why is it really important that women have an integral role in places like the Situation Room or lead on diplomatic negotiations? I really do think it's very important to have a woman's voice in the room and actually more than one woman's voice. Because part of the problem, if you are the only woman in the room, and, he, and I must say that I fell a subject to this myself, is I would want to say something and then I think, well, that'll sound stupid. And then some man says it and everybody thinks it's brilliant and you're mad at yourself for not saying something and the men would support each other. You know, uh, John would be speaking and he'd say, well, as Joe thought or, uh, you know, Bob thought. And so I think it's important to have more than one woman in the room so uh, we can really speak to each other, for each other, with each other and really be there. But I do think that having women's views and women's voices in a room uh, is absolutely essential for good decision making. Do you think that having women in the room changed the outcome in some way? Well, I do think, you know, these are generalizations, but I do think that men and women think somewhat differently. I do think because women have to multitask just to exist, that women have more peripheral vision um, in terms of kind of seeing the consequences of issues and understanding peripherally. Men, I do believe, and again, this is a generalization, may think longer about one subject. And therefore, kind of having the combination, I think, is very important. I do think women are better at putting themselves into the other person's shoes, which is something that is absolutely essential for diplomacy, understanding uh, what the other people are thinking, and then caring. Uh, I do think that that is something that has made a big difference. Initially, I have to tell you, as a uh, the, the virus was spreading, the countries that were doing the best were those run by women. Taiwan, New Zealand, 
Norway, Sweden, um, a number of countries that really did have active women. Do you think that we have enough women on the international scene right now? Well, no, I don't think we have enough women. And, but I think the women that uh, we have seen and, and had, I'm very sorry that Angela Merkel's time is over in Germany. She has played a very, very large role and, and has, this sounds very patronizing, but has grown into it. I remember I first met her when she took over the party, but then she became chancellor uh, and that made a big difference because she played a very, very important role. I was watching the United Nations meeting yesterday, actually, to talk about uh, what had happened in Afghanistan. And obviously, the United States is represented again by a woman, by Linda Thomas-Greenfield. But so is the United Kingdom. And the deputy for Ireland is a woman. And so I was the only woman on the Security Council at the time that I was in New York. And and I do think it makes a difference. And, and by the way, the thing that happened when I was ambassador to the UN, and it was one of the first times I didn't have to cook lunch myself. So I asked my assistant to get the other women ambassadors so that I could meet with them. And at that time, there were 183 countries in the United Nations. So I get to my uh, you know, place I lived, and there are uh, six other women there out of all of that. Canada, Philippines, Kazakhstan, Trinidad, Tobago, Jamaica, and Liechtenstein, and me. So being the American, I decided that we had to form a caucus, and we called ourselves the G7. And we agreed always to take each other's telephone calls. We exchanged uh, what our backgrounds were, what we were doing. But we did lobby together for something, which was there was a new war crimes tribunal in terms of what had been happening in the Balkans, and most of the crimes were being committed against women, uh, rapes, and uh, we were able to lobby to get two women judges on the first uh, former Yugoslav court, and that made a difference. We also were able to get rape declared a weapon of war, so I do think it makes a difference. And when there were men who said to me, why would you take a call from Liechtenstein instead of me? And I actually had the gall to say to this person, well, get yourself replaced by a woman and I'll always take your telephone call. You have great stories. Do you, do you have any others you can share with us? I have to tell you that one of the hard parts is what it was like to go into a meeting. Man, you, you wouldn't believe it. Um, you travel abroad um, and it's a very important meeting. And the truth is that everything really does begin with small talk. So men talk about, believe it or not, about their ties or something. And so, uh, you know, I, I was, they weren't used to dealing with a woman and we would begin and I would um, do some pleasantries and glad to be in your country and all that. And we wouldn't get anywhere. So I finally would say, uh, excuse me, but I have come a long way. So I must be frank. And then I really made some very frank points. But you have to be able to read the room a little bit and not automatically be angry, but try to figure out what you need to say and say it and really be very proud to represent your country, which I clearly was. 
Well, I'm going to have to use that Frank line myself sometime. That's a good one. You referenced um, in your book, I, I can't remember who asked you, but somebody asked you if you had trouble getting the men to listen to you. And you said, absolutely not. I flew in on Air Force One with the United States seal emblazoned on the side. And that's a powerful moment that you recall in that book. Well, let me tell you how it all came up. What happened was when my name came up to be Secretary of State, because it was clear that Warren Christopher wasn't going to stay for a second term. So there was a period of what I call the great mentioning. And my name was out there. And somebody said, well, a woman couldn't be Secretary of State because Arab countries would not deal with a woman. So what happened actually was the Arab ambassadors at the UN with whom I had dealt put out a statement saying we had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. Uh, We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. Then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yeah, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. So I was sure that I would never get it. Anyway, I was named Secretary of State, and I did arrive to deal with the Gulf Cooperation Council in Kuwait. And I did arrive in a very large plane that said United States of America. And then we had our meeting, and I actually said, you've been very kind. Perhaps you've noticed that I'm not dressed the way my predecessors were. And next time we'll talk about women's rights. And we did. But I really do now have to tell the story of how come I did get to be Secretary of State. Because what happened was that often, once I was, I traveled with First Lady Hillary Clinton and President Clinton. And we had this kind of thing that we did where I would introduce her, she would introduce him. And we were somewhere abroad at an embassy And President Clinton told the following story, that during the period of the time that there was a discussion about who would be the next secretary, that Hillary would come to him and say, why wouldn't you name Madeline? She's most in tune with your views and expresses them better than anybody else. And besides, it would make your mother happy. So that is how it happened. Let me just ask you one question about democracy right now in general. Democracy is experiencing a significant fight for its existence in so many countries all over the world. How do you make sense of what we're witnessing? Well, I think that there are questions generally about governance. And I have to say that what has happened is that in many places, kind of the social contract has been broken, where people gave up their individual rights in order to have the government take on certain duties. And at the part of the other side of the contract is that then the citizens have a responsibility to know what is going on and participate. And to some extent, a lot of those things in some ways have broken down. And so that is the time that some kind of a a strong leader steps in and says, I can do that better. I did write a book called Fascism, A Warning, that really shows that when there um, are major disagreements and there is some kind of a leader who says that, and their he's, can solve the problem, there is a way that they get ahead and democracy really does suffer. I truly do believe that we are all the same, that people want to be able to make decisions about their own lives. And it may begin with where they live or send their children to school, but it then really grows into wanting to have a voice in how their country is run. And I think I see there is happening in some places. And I think that we can't just decide 
or give up and think that authoritarianism does things better. It does not. And you witnessed so many falls of democracy and in, in sort of that cyclical um, cycle in Eastern Europe while you were growing up. I was born in Czechoslovakia, which became a victim of fascism. And so I spent the war in England with my family, my father, who was a diplomat, uh, working for the government in exile. And then later, Czechoslovakia was taken over by communists. So I have seen the country I was born in being taken over by authoritarian governments twice. But I also, having seen a moment of great hope and exhilaration with the fall of the wall and the end of the Soviet Union, where countries really began, the ones in Central and Eastern Europe, to see that um, they could have a life that did not divide them from democracy. Well, no wiser words. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for asking those really important questions because they are the basis of where we have to go. And this is a new era. I believe it very strongly. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Very good to be with you, Adrian. Thanks a lot. This podcast has been produced by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the U.S. government and is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit www.seps.org forward slash podcast. <laughs>